My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. I hope you all have had a good weekend, especially the women who are on women's retreat. I hope that was a blessing to you. Yeah. Some of you had a little more fun than others. And I just want to let you know that my children are good at cleaning up toilet paper. So... We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16 this morning. You can go ahead and turn there. It's on page 467 in our blue Bibles. Uh, the text will be on the screen as well as we walk through this together as we continue to walk through these different disputes that God has with his people through his prophet Malachi. I think Americans and Southerners are fairly okay with unsolicited advice and opinions. Uh, for the most part, like I think it... Like if I'm in the line at cookout and somebody comes to me and says, hey, did you know that you can like upgrade your drink to a milkshake for a dollar more? I welcome that. <laughs> I say, blessed and highly favored. This is amazing that for $8 you can get a milkshake and a cheeseburger and french fries and chicken quesadilla. And sure, the long-term outlook isn't great, but the short-term benefit is wonderful. I appreciate anyone who's willing to give me such good news on opinions like that. I think there's a lot of different areas that if someone were to speak into your life, you'd welcome that. And you'd be thankful that they pointed out something that was so helpful. I do think it has its limits, though. I think there's a few different areas that if someone's looking over your shoulder and says, hey, this, you go, mm, no, uh, uh, mind your business. Like, that's just, I think there's a few different areas. Two in particular are money and romance. Right? So if someone wants to speak into how you spend your money, typical gut American response is, I made that money. I'll, I'll spend it how well, please. Mind your business. Like if someone wants to come and speak into your marriage or speak into your relationship, you're like, ah, no, I'm good. You, you've, you've, you've stepped over the line. Like I think that's kind of two general areas I think that we're not okay with. I mean, if I'm honest, like if someone wanted to helpfully come alongside me, look at our budget and say, I've looked at your budget, and I have, you, have a few suggestions on how you can cut costs here, here, and here that my gut instinct would be, mm, thank you for your opinion, which is my stock way. It's like my, my phrase for saying, I'm, I'm good with what you have said. So some of you have heard me say that to you, and now you know. <laughs> Going forward, if I say, thank you for your opinion, it's, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm moving on from this. Right? I just think there's something in us that just doesn't want those two areas to be touched. And Malachi says, oh yeah, well how about I talk about both of them uh, intensely for a couple of chapters. <laughs> and that's what we're, we're wading into now. Is in the next few weeks, uh, we're going to look at God speaking into the marriages of the people and also the money and the finances of the people. And he's coming for both of them. So this week, specifically in this third dispute, we're going to see God speaking to the marriages of the people. And there's a part of us that's going to want to say, mind your business. But Malachi is going to say, do you belong to God? Okay, then no. I'm going to speak into this. I'm going to speak into the relationships amongst the people of God. So we're going to see how God addresses the people and their marriages and then as the church, how we get to look at this and see how it applies to us today. So let me pray for us, and then we'll walk through this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being able to come and worship you and sing praises to you, offer up prayers of thanksgiving to you, and also that we get to receive your word. God, I pray that you'd help us receive it, for it is a difficult word, just as it was for the people of God thousands of years ago. May you help us receive it and walk this out in faith and in repentance, 
and in worship and delighting in you ultimately because you are worthy of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Chet finished up the second dispute last week where God is uh, correcting the priesthood. The priesthood at the time was uh, conducting a charade. They were, they were simply going through the motions of worship. It wasn't real, true heart worship. It wasn't offering the sacrifices they were supposed to, but they were facilitating this system, and God calls out the priesthood for their failures. And then he shifts into this third dispute, picking up here in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, other versions will say, why do we deal treacherously, or why do we betray one another? At the beginning of this dispute, he is dealing with some of the faithlessness that's happening to one another, that he establishes very early on in Malachi that he is the father of this nation. He's the father of the Jewish people. That means that they are the family of God, and they should treat one another as family, but they're not doing this like they are supposed to. There's faithlessness happening towards one another. And then he shifts this into two specific areas, starting in verse 11. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tent of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the first area he's going to address is the intermarriages that have happened amongst the people of God. They have married the daughters of foreign gods. Now, there are skeptics that will latch on to this and see, see, your God is against interracial marriage. Your God is an ethnocentric God. And that's completely misreading the text. This has nothing to do with Jewish people marrying Persians. This has everything to do with marrying someone who does not worship the one true God. That is embedded into the Old Testament law, this teaching that says you shall marry someone who also loves the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind. You should absolutely enter into marriage only with those who have the same faith. This is in Deuteronomy 7. It's in multiple places, but we're going to just see one in Deuteronomy 7. It says you shall, inter- you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons for... They would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So it's this teaching of do not marry foreigners who worship foreign gods. Don't do this. The people are far too weak in their faith. They're far too weak to marry someone who doesn't share the same God. I mean, they, this, in Deuteronomy, when they received that law, that's just after God did this miraculous, wonderful work, bringing them out of Egypt that we got to walk through in Exodus last year. And he brings them out, and they immediately, they're not even amongst the people of uh, the, the surrounding nations. It's just them and their God in the wilderness. They worship a golden calf. He says, do not settle the land and marry foreign wives. Because you are far too weak to do this. Now, the reason they would have wanted to do this, and the reason why this was common at the time, was if you're going to settle into a new area, if you're going to be with a people who are not of your own, it was advantageous for you to marry off your daughters or your sons 
because that helped establish trade, that helped establish treaties, that helped establish covenants with other people so that you could live in peace with another and so that everyone could prosper. So there was a financial advantage. There was a prosperity advantage to actually marrying someone who worships a foreign god, but it came at the cost of their own faith. And the reason we know this is because of the whole rest of the Old Testament. Like the whole rest of the Old Testament is the people of God intermarrying with the foreign people and worshiping their gods and setting up Asherah poles and and making sacrifices to Baal and giving child sacrifices, sacrificing their own children to the god Moloch, all these surrounding gods from around the surrounding nations, they get pulled into that worship. I mean, Nehemiah, when he's addressing this, which is really just before the, the prophet of Malachi, Nehemiah, when he's addressing this, uses Solomon as the prime example. He says in Nehemiah 13, he says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. And he says, Solomon, who was the wisest king we ever had. Solomon, who was a great king. The, the downfall of Solomon, and ultimately the splitting apart of the kingdom of Israel and Judah, came down to the fact that he chose to establish relationships with foreign countries, foreign peoples, by bringing in their daughters and marrying those wives, and ultimately he worships their gods. And he says, if Solomon has fallen to this, what shot do y'all have? What are we thinking? What are we doing here, who you want to marry is not your free choice. It does not matter if you love them. It does not matter if you think it's going to gain you some financial advantage. It's going to establish some treaty with a different people. The most important aspect of who you marry is who they worship. That is the most important aspect of marriage, who they worship. Because marriage is not just a two-party covenant. It's not just a two-party agreement. It is a three-party covenant. It is man, wife, and God. And that's clear throughout the scriptures. God is the centerpiece of marriage. And the reason why is because marriage ultimately is a picture. It's ultimately a smaller picture, the bigger picture, which is God's love for his people. The marriage reflects that bigger reality, God's love for his people. Ephesians 5 so beautifully teaches that when it begins with husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That ultimately marriage is this picture of God's sacrificial love, that God loves his people so much that he gave up his son to be crushed for his people. That sacrificial love of God for his people gets to be reflected in marriage. It is bigger than ourselves. And that is why from the Old Testament into the New Testament, the teaching is the same. When you get to First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 6, Paul teaches the same thing from the Old Testament. In verse 14 and following, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's another name for Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. And he says, don't be unequally yoked. Don't marry someone who is not a believer. Don't marry someone who does not love Christ like you do. And he has pretty sharp images here. What partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Fellowship with uh, light with light versus darkness. Christ versus the evil one. You're sons of God. 
And if you're not in Christ, the Bible says you're sons and daughters of disobedience. What, what are we, you don't have a share with them. They don't love God. They worship idols. And this teaching gets pulled into the New Testament because the covenant of marriage is not just man and wife. It is man and wife and our covenant God. Now, for us, maybe you're single and you, you desire to be married. And maybe you've made a list of things that you value in a spouse. Maybe you're like, I, you know, I want him to be financially secure and to have a good 10-year plan. Or I want him to brush his teeth. <laughs> I, I want her to laugh at my jokes and her laugh not be annoying. Like I just, I don't, I don't know, whatever that is for your list. Like I don't, maybe you've got a list of things where it's like, I, I, I want this and I want that and I want this and I want that. I'm not going to compromise on this or that or this or that. But let me tell you something. If Jesus is not at the top of that list, if at the top of your list isn't do they love Christ and not just say they are Christian, but love him and display him with the fruit of the spirit, that they, they are committed to the people of God in the local church, that, they, he, that he is uh, or she is uh, immersed in his word and loves him. If that's not at the top of the list of whom you are going to marry, then I'll just be honest, you're doing it wrong. Do they love Christ? That is the most pinnacle question. So much so that if you have that as the question, everything else on the list, is he tall enough? Is she, is she fill in the blank? That those pale in comparison to Christ, it's so much so that, that some of those other things become less important because it's not that this man loves Jesus and this woman loves Christ. I don't care if he's not 6'2". He's worth that. So have that as a category so deeply in your mind as you're thinking through this because what will inevitably happen is you'll start to justify who you want to marry. You'll start to make compromises. You'll say, yeah, I mean, he says he's a Christian and I mean, he, you know, he got burned by the church. He's church hurt from a few years ago, but like, you know, he doesn't really read his Bible and yeah, I mean, he kind of part his, goes hard on the weekend, but like, I don't know, like I, I can probably win him over a little bit. I can probably win her, sway her a little bit over you know, we, if, you know, if we progress into this, then I'll, you know, we'll, I'll start reading the Bible with them. We'll pray together. Like we'll, when we get married, like I'll, I'll get them involved in our community group. It'll be fine. We'll work, we'll work it out. And while God in his grace does sometime use spouses to lead their other spouse to Christ, that does happen. I would also say that that is very much a cautionary tale because it also goes awry so often. And there's so many ways that if you choose to marry someone that does not love Christ, where your values are ultimately going to be pitted against theirs in ways that you didn't see coming. I mean, very practically, when you go to raise children one day, when you go to raise children one day and you want to raise them in the faith and you want to take them and bring them here on Sundays, you want to uh, let them be involved in Kid City and in student ministries, it's going to be very hard if you've married someone who says, nah, I think I'm going to take them hunting this Sunday. I think that's more important is our father-son experience. So I'm going to take them hunting this Sunday. It's going to be very hard when you're trying to uh, teach the gospel to your children and, and help them know who Christ is, and he or she is undermining that at every turn. I mean, I got a buddy whose who's wife left him and clean, I mean, just cleaned his clock in the divorce and took the kids, and she recanted the faith, and she absolutely has done everything to sow doubt in, in her in her. In her in those kids' minds with not just him, but with Christ. And he gets them once every two weekends. And he does everything he can to display Christ to them. 
But that's a reality you need to grapple with before you choose spouse. Do they love Christ deeply? If not, then you're going to be in a difficult situation. Now, if that is your situation, the Bible does give us a word on this. Gives us a helpful uh, scripture from 1 Peter 3. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So we do have some, some wonderful wisdom here for what happens if you're in a marriage where someone doesn't believe the gospel. And I'll be honest, this is, this is even more difficult for women because we teach that, that, that men are supposed to lead in marriage. Therefore, she's supposed to follow him in submission in marriage. And if he doesn't value Christ, that gets really tricky. It gets very difficult. But we have a word here that says, you win them over by the conduct, meaning that you make Jesus look good in the way that you live, in the way that you love your husband, the way that you show respect, in the way that you, that we have a word here that says you get to display Christ. And I think this is also down the line applicable to husbands as well, that if you are married to someone who's not a believer, that you get to display Jesus and make Jesus look good by how you love your wife. And when you do this, there will be opportunities for you to declare who Christ is. But that's difficult, and the reality is, is that if you are single, you should not sign up for that. And if you are married, you should absolutely take the words of First Peter and run with it as a, as a life anthem. I'm going to display Christ in my marriage to my children. I'm going to display Christ in my marriage to my spouse. I'm going to pray unceasingly for my spouse. I'm going to, I'm going to love them. And when times are hard and we have different values and he doesn't want this, or she doesn't want this, I'm going to surround myself with Christian community. My group's going to be praying for me. My group's going to be praying for my spouse. But I'm going to stay in this because of the second big thing that Malachi addresses, and that is that divorce is actually not an option. And that is the second part of this, the second part of this dispute with the marriages of the people, and that is divorce. Picking up in verse 13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So this is a lament from the people. Like, we're offering worship. We're doing, the, we're, doing, we're doing the things. We're bringing it to you. You're not finding favor upon us, O God. And they end up asking why. Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Why has God not shown favor on us in our worship? Why is God not sh- uh, shining upon us? Why do the Persians still rule over us? What is happening? Why, O Lord? And it says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit and their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So, guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. All right, that's a difficult text for various reasons that we're going to get to in a moment. And it's vague at parts to kind of figure out what he's doing here. Let's start with the clearest implications from this text and what he's saying. In verse 14, he says, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
And what he just said was a condemnation of the divorces that have happened amongst the people of God, that you have been faithless to the wife of your youth. You have divorced the wife of your youth. That is what he's calling out here. And then in verse 15, it says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And he brings up the truth we just walked through. It's a three-party covenant that my spirit was there when you joined together. I'm with you. And you're breaking this apart. This is Genesis 2 language. The two became one flesh, and God is with them in that holy union. And you're breaking it apart. And that's not supposed to be. And he goes on, he says, And what was the one God-seeking godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. He says, in this one flesh union, you're supposed to stay together. You're supposed to have a godly offspring, a godly legacy of faith that carries on from generation to generation to generation. And this blessed one flesh union. And here is where this gets pretty difficult. Verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. All right. There's a lot going on here. I want to be frank with you. This is one of the most debated verses in the entire Bible. Okay? So we're going to back up a little bit and understand how we get here. So the Bible is translated mostly Greek and Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. All right, that's the original languages it was written in. And they, those scriptures were recorded down in manuscripts. The original manuscripts are lost to time. However, there's a very rich tradition of scribes copying down these scriptures for thousands of years. And it's, guys, there are more copies of the Bible around the world more manuscripts around the world than any other ancient document. It's not even remotely close. There's a rich tradition. And what's crazy, what's wild is, is that over 99% of all the different scripts and scriptures that we have across the world from written in different centuries, copied down and copied down and copied down, over 99% of that, when you line all of those words up, they match every single, I mean, you I have a, a community in Alexandria and a, a Syriac community here that wrote and recorded scriptures for years and for years and for years. And when you line them up, they line up on like 99% just wonderfully, dot for dot, mark for mark. That's it's amazing the Holy Spirit has guided this for so long, so wonderfully, so reliably. But every now and then, every now and then, you get two different texts, and they say something different. Just a little bit. So much so that it's like, actually, they use this word here, but this community used this word here. But when you line them up together, it's actually the exact same thing. So we know that that's exactly what this means. And there's a group of people that are huge Bible nerds called textual critics that devote their lives to these languages to make sure that we're understanding this is what the original text said and we're able to trust our Bible so well. But every now and then, in the rarest of circumstances, you're going to see two different textual traditions that line up and you're going to go, oh, okay, what's being said here is two different things. And there's a whole, like, rich tradition of how to figure out what was the original meaning, what was the original thing saying. And verse 16 is one of the rare circumstances where it's like, oh, boy, this is actually something where there's two 
different meanings here, and I want to walk through them. The first here is what we read in the ESV. The ESV says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers her garment with violence, says the Lord. So what's being taught there and what's being displayed there is that when a man divorces his wife, he shows a great act of hatred towards his wife. He shows a great lack of love, a great hatred towards his wife, and ultimately he covers the garment of violence, and that's a euphemism for cruelty, dishonoring her. So that's one way to read this text. Then there's another way to read this text, and I'll just read a few different versions that capture this different idea. Starting with the NASB. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence. Well, that's different. God hates divorce, and he hates the man. That, that hatred is extended towards the man who covers his wife with a garment of violence, who, who ultimately dishonors her like this. The NET captures that as well. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and the one who is guilty of violence, says the Lord who rules over all. The NLT, which is a, which is a solid paraphrase of the Bible, says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And then it shifts a little bit. It says, to divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. So it moves a little bit away from God's hatred towards divorce to the man who does it, to God hates divorce, and this act is an act of hatred towards his wife. Now, God hating divorce and the man involved in it, and this being an act of hatred towards her spouse are actually two different meanings. And in the rarest of circumstances in the scriptures, you've got to figure out, okay, well, which one? Because those are different. And I'm not going to shock you here. I'm not a textual critic scholar. I know some of y'all were thinking that. Like, this guy, he's just so wise. No. <laughs> I'm nowhere. Like, I, that, that is so far above my pay grade. I'm like, I, even if I tried really hard. Like, I, I was in classes with some of those guys in seminary. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I ain't doing that. Like, I've got no business in being in classes with these guys. So I, we're not... We, we're not skilled enough to look at this and go, I, you know, I, based on the original language, A or B, okay? And what happens is that sometimes in these rare circumstances in the Bible, what we'll do is, okay, well, I need to pick one, and I want to go with my gut. And I don't like the idea that God hates divorce and hates the one who's divorced. So I'm, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. I, I, I'd rather go with the other option. This is an act of hatred. So what do you do in situations like this? I think, first... Look at the context of the passage and kind of see what's clearly being taught. And then you back away from the text and you take the text against the whole teaching of the scriptures. And you realize that actually, I think both of those have truth to them. I think if you look at the whole of the scriptures, I think you're going to see God does hate divorce. And also, it is an act of cruelty towards the one who's involved. So let's look at the context directly and then we'll kind of back out a little more. So one thing that's very clear from directly from Malachi, divorce was not a part of the original plan for marriage. There's a reason God uses Genesis language here. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union in verse 15? There's a reason that shows up. This was not a part of the original design. Oh, Jewish people, you're doing this, and you're not, you're not, you're not in line with how God originally designed this to be. This beautiful covenant is meant to last a lifetime. It's meant to reflect something bigger than yourselves. 
So, the, so marriage is meant to be, it, it, divorce is not a part of the original plan. The second, that's very clear from this context, divorce and their context harmed women. It harmed women. Now, some commentators will push this and say, well, what's actually happening here is that the people of God, when they settled back into the promised land, they weren't like, you know, the elites. They weren't part of the social, you know, they didn't have all the money and prestige. And what the, some of these men were doing, some of these Jewish men were divorcing their Jewish wives so they could marry Persian wives of greater status to advance. And I think that's a fine way to look at this. I don't know if you can really say that with certainty, that that's exactly what happened here. But what is clear is that divorce harmed women. You can see that historically. You can see it in the scriptures. It, it, it made them. It, it, it took the, like, back then, it's not like that not, not a lot of women could survive on their own without a husband. That just, that just was the reality. So that harmed their ability to provide for themselves. If they were widowed and they, and they were divorced, that stigmatized them, stigmatized them greatly so that they might not get remarried. That, that also meant... That if they didn't have sons, they didn't have social security because that was your social security back then. If you didn't have sons, you didn't have a way to provide for yourself. So divorce harmed women. It was indeed an act of cruelty towards your wife. And there was a lot of, you see this being pulled all the way into the time when Jesus comes along, of women being divorced just for, you know, because she burnt the food. I mean, just some, some heinous things that were happening. So, I think in the direct context, you can see that very clearly. But when you zoom out and you look at this in the context of the rest of the scriptures, I think it becomes pretty clear that God actually, he does not like divorce. This is not a part of his original plan. And when Jesus is being challenged on this, in Matthew 19, this is what he says so clearly. He says, verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And he's pretty plain with this. Let, let no man separate this. Do not tear what has been brought together. The, the marriage is meant to be a lifelong covenant. The God's ultimate desire is for that marriage to continue. Now, I know when I say all of that, some of you who know your Bible are like, wait a second though. I, don't, I, I think the New Testament gives us a, like, like two different Two different uh, reasons for a biblical divorce, and that is correct. We've taught on this in the past. It's not the first time we've taught on this subject matter, and we've gone more into detail in our, in our Matthew 19 sermon on this about some of these allowances. There's the pornea clause in Matthew 19, which is dealing with gross sexual immorality, and then you've got in First uh, Corinthians 7, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. These are two that, we, that we've taught on in the past. But I don't want to spend time in that because we've done this before and I'd point you to those sermons because Malachi isn't nuancing here. Malachi is speaking very plainly here. He is arguing against divorce and the harm that it causes and that it is a faithless act. Now, I understand. I understand that teaching that, A, is deeply unpopular in our culture and B, is not done in a vacuum, meaning it's not done in a neutral environment where we don't have like, we have preloaded experiences and opinions. Like I, I get that. I, I know it's deeply unpopular. And the reason it's deeply unpopular is because marriage and this culture is so much about happiness. It's, it is about your personal uh, happiness and joy. And that, and that is the air that we breathe. It's in all the, the media that we consume. It's in the stories that we live in. That marriage is about personal happiness. And when marriage fails to make you personally happy, then get out. Move on. 
You don't want to live a whole life that's not happy. Move on to something that brings you more happiness. And that's the very air that we breathe in the context of the marriage that we understand in our culture. And therefore, preaching this right here makes that deeply unpopular. And I also know it's not done in a vacuum. If you're like me, some of you are children of divorce. And I mean, my parents got divorced when I was four. And two Christmases is pretty sweet. But outside of that, it kind of stinks. <laughs> it's pretty painful. It's hard. There's a lot of just uh, uh, of suffering that comes along with that for the years that follow and the years that follow into adulthood. Right? And I also know that, that some of you have walked through divorce and the pain of divorce. And I understand how difficult this is. And we don't approach this neutrally at all. And while it is very difficult, Malachi is not nuancing. And I think it's for a reason. It's to feel the force that really shows up in verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord. The, the God of Israel covers her with a garment of violence, says the Lord. So, hear this. Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. We want our soul, our spirit, to be so united with Christ that he guards us from this folly, that he guards us from this path. That he defends us, that he keeps us, he guards us. I mean, we, we want to embody what Ephesians 5 teaches, to be a people that understands that God's, his God's place in marriage in the first place. But what that means is, is that we have to trust God over our own cultural instincts, over what we want. We have to actually trust God, and that is hard. To guard ourselves in your spirit, and to not be faithless requires trusting God's word when we don't want to. Because here's the reality. If you get all of your romantic desires, if you get to marry the man or the woman that you want to marry, even though they don't love Christ, and if you get to end the marriage that you don't want to be in, if you get those things, ultimately you will get what you want, but you will engage in something that is faithless towards Christ, and you miss the point altogether. And the plea from the scriptures here is don't. Don't trade your faith in for a fiance. Don't trade your freedom in, your faith in for, some, for a freedom that, that ultimately will not satisfy. Don't do it. It only displays a level of unbelief where we just don't trust God's word. I don't care what God's word says. I don't care what the Bible says. You don't know my situation. You don't know how hard this is. Ultimately, it's a step of faith to trust God and persevere in a marriage that is difficult ultimately for our good. It is difficult to walk in singleness and finally find someone who likes you and, and, and makes you feel good and then to have to look and see they don't belong to Christ and make that decision. I can't be with this person. It takes a faith to trust God that ultimately his word is better than our own desires. And that's difficult. It's very difficult. I mean, you ask pastors. I mean, I'm, right now I'm taking classes and I'm, I'm reading all these pastors who are in these counseling books, and it's just like, it's clear, the most difficult situation that a pastor is probably ever going to face, one of the most consistently difficult situations is going to be marriage and divorce, hands down. This is extremely difficult. But we can trust him, and we can believe that he is good, and that what he holds out in front of us, though we don't want it, ultimately is good. And we can, as that 
text ends, as this dispute ends, guard ourselves and our spirit and not be faithless. I want to end with going to 2 Thessalonians 3. And I want to read this and I want to pray this over our church because this passage has some, some, some connections and language to this difficult dispute that I think is helpful to receive. I'm going to read this first and then we'll pray. I'm going to pray this over us. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3 through 5, it says, But the Lord is faithful. God is faithful, y'all. He's faithful towards us, even when we are faithless. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That our God does. He would defend us from the evil one who would love to snuff out the flame of faith in our lives. He will guard us. Verse 4, and we have, a, we have confidence in the Lord about you. That you are doing and will do the things that we command. That God has a confidence that ultimately we will walk in obedience even when it is difficult. Verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May God direct our hearts towards his deep abiding love and the steadfastness of Christ. So bow our heads and I want to pray this over us as we close out. Heavenly Father. With such a difficult teaching, I pray that you'd help us have open hearts to receive this. May we love you so deeply because you are faithful. God, you are faithful. You are faithful. Despite of our desires, in spite of our desires, you are faithful. May you establish us, O Lord. May you guard us against the evil one who would love for us to end up in marriages that we should not be in, who would love for us to choose our own instincts over trusting you. May we do your will and keep your commandments by trusting you with both our singleness, but also with marriages that are the source of so much pain. Or may those who have been through divorce, even divorce for unbiblical reasons, may you direct our hearts to your love and to your steadfastness that we might, even though we have failed, even though we have suffered, even though we've walked through some of those difficult moments of our lives, when we persevere in faith, even where in the past we may have acted faithlessly, may we be a people who allow you into the most sensitive areas of our lives so that we may be faithful in all things and may you guard us by the power of your spirit working in us that we might be faithful. Amen. Band's going to come up and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. No doubt this sermon touches on some of the sorest regions of our souls and our stories. And I just want you to remember that our God is good. He is worthy of our trust and our faith. And in faith, even when we have sinned, even when we have misstepped, even when we have strayed from the path, even when we've not obeyed God's word, in faith, Jesus gives the invitation Come to the table. That if you belong to Christ, the table is open for you. You don't have to come forth in shame, but you can get to come forth in the grace that covers you and the shame that was born on Christ on the cross. Then the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that was broken for you. And he took the blood, he took the, 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 the cup, which is the cup of the new covenant. He said, this is my blood that was shed for you, that as often as you eat and drink this, you proclaim my death until I return. So we get to come to the table, no matter what your story is, no matter where you are, if, if you believe and you belong to Christ, you get to come to the table and praise Jesus that even when we're faithless, no matter what we're walking through, even though when we're sinners and wayward, no matter what we're walking through, that God's love is sufficient and his grace is enough. So you get to come to the table 
and you get to take of this and remember our Savior. Whatever you're walking through, out of that grace and that mercy and that kindness that Jesus shows us, we get to ask the Lord the difficult questions. We get to ask him, Lord, what do you want for me? What is faithfulness? What is obedience? And then we get to walk that together out as the church. If you're not a Christian, we don't want you to take part in the Lord's Supper. We want you to take part in Christ because he's worthy of it. And trusting him is ultimately better than anything this world has to offer. So when you are ready, come to the table. There's gluten-free in that back corner.